The New Testament reading comes from the book of Romans, chapter 8. You can read along in your insert, but let us listen for the word of the Lord speaking into our lives here and now through these ancient words. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies, for in hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Imagine with me a parable of two people coming to the end of a very long day. They're both in separate rooms, separate places. They don't know each other. They're getting ready. They're looking back, and they're reflecting on their day. And the first person thinks, well, that's a relief. I made it through. I did well all day. I kept to myself. I stayed away from anything too controversial or inflammatory. I avoided upsetting anyone, kept everyone happy. I avoided being hoodwinked or taken in. Didn't waste a cent of money or energy on someone or something who didn't deserve it. I kept myself from feeling beholden to anyone, from owing anyone anything. I managed to steer clear of risks, to keep my eyes down, to avoid any conversation where I might look stupid, where someone might correct me. I made it through the day. No one could find a fault with me today. Let's see if I can keep it up for tomorrow. Let's see if I can keep going. The second person thinks, well, that was a mess. I really stuck my foot in it with that conversation with that woman. Wow, did she get upset. But I guess she had a point. I guess I didn't exactly know what I was talking about. And who knows what that guy from the street corner actually wanted to do with my money, but we did have a nice chat when I bought him some lunch, and now I see him next. I can call him by name. And yes, 
I know I probably looked so stupid rocking out to that song in my car, but who can resist? And oh, it was worth it. Even if the teenager in the next car over gave me quite a look. I just about made it through the day. Whew, guess that's a wrap for now. What a day, what a life. Bring on tomorrow. I wonder what you hear in this little parable. I wonder where you might find yourself. I wonder, in hearing this, which person do you see as free? And which person do you hear as trapped? Sometimes being trapped and being free don't always look how we expect them to look. Romans 8 uses strong words like slavery and bondage to describe a world that needs to be freed, to describe creatures and a creation that feels trapped by the reality of how things are. We know this feeling, I'm sure. At some point in our lives, we want to know what is beyond this world, this life. Paul uses visceral images to describe this longing. He starts with an image of death, of putting to death the bonds in the f- of the flesh. And he ends with an image of birth, of creation, laboring. He is describing how desperately ready we all are for something beyond the life we have or we know right now. We are held, bound, trapped, enslaved, caught in eddies of sin and suffering. All the world is groaning with longing and eager anticipation. Yet, as we hear Psalm 139 next to Romans 8, I'm struck by something. I'm struck by how similar the language is between both scriptures. Both describe sensations of being held fast. Both describe situations where there is no escape as yet. In the psalm, we are promised that there is nowhere we can flee from God's presence. We are reminded that God hems us in or borders and bounds us behind and before. We are reminded that Your right hand shall hold me fast. In this psalm, you, like me, might find these words comforting rather than troubling, freeing rather than confining. I wonder what the difference is. We could probably spend all day comparing and contrasting these passages, but I think there's one key difference. And the difference is, where do we start from? How do we see our starting point? How do we see ourselves? What is our expectation of our own individual lives? Quite simply, who do we, who do you and me, when we read these scriptures, who do we think we are? If we see ourselves as free and self-reliant, not beholden to anyone for anything, somehow able to make it through the day on our own merit with an excellent grade, well, then we can have quite a nasty shock when we look at the world, when we face things like dying and birth, which we cannot control. Paul is describing a world where we discover we are limited, despite our best attempts, bounded by sin and pain and death. If we already see ourselves as bounded by these things, as small and limited, unable to know ourselves, let alone the world, 
unable to see in the dark or to ascend and descend to all the heights and depths we can imagine, if we understand ourselves as those sorts of individuals, well then, the psalmist has some words of comfort for us. We are limited and flaw-filled creatures. We are hemmed in and held. But if we sit with it and look closely, we discover that it is our creator who is the one holding us. It is our redeemer who is with us every step of the way. God watches us and knows us, cares for us, and redeems us. These two scriptures describe the experience of being held fast. But Paul is speaking to our attempts to control the world as it is. And the psalmist is speaking to our attempts to allow God to be as God is. This means we see being held as the difference between being held in the cold chains of control or the warm embrace of our God. Who do we think we are? There is real struggle and pain in the world. We can be mean and cruel to each other. We groan and long for redemption, for transformation of ourselves, our families, our jobs, our politics, our economics, our schools, our lives, our world. So much needs to be changed. So much needs to be corrected. So much needs to be turned inside out and upside down and transformed. We can feel trapped by how things are. We yearn for how things still might be. So what do we do with this yearning, with our need for transformation? Who do we think we are and how do we reveal ourselves to others? Do we start each day with a determination to keep up appearances? Do we work hard to hide from others the reality that we too are broken, that we too need to be transformed? Do we approach each new day with the worry of a straight A student who might lose some points on an exam if people discovered the truth about his or her real flaws? Or do we give up pretending that we have it all together Do we give up pretending that we can do everything right and make the grade? Perhaps, instead, we might approach each new day with the eyes of a child that knows he or she is messed up and now is waiting eagerly for the teacher who will stoop low, look him in the eye, and say, yes, you really did mess up. That was a mess, but I'm still here. I'm still going to walk you through it. Let's go over this again. Let's try again. My cousin used to teach at Enrico Juvenile Detention Facility, and one might think this would be a tough place to teach, but she said surprisingly it was one of the best places she has ever taught. She actually wrote a novel inspired by her experience She had years of public school teaching under her belt, but she found that working in the jail was easier. For one thing, she didn't ever need to worry about discipline. If there was ever a problem, a child acted up, she pushed a button, a guard came, and that was that. But more significantly, her students who were in the class wanted to be there. 
Many of her students had spent years acting tough, trying to prove how street smart they were. They had spent years pretending and posturing, and now it had landed them in jail. And sure, it might ruin the rest of their life. Their teenage mistakes might follow them on a criminal record of some sort. But these students had finally lived up to expectations and proved their toughness. And so then, my cousin says, something amazing would start to happen, and she would start to teach. In the jail, the young people started to change. They let go. They let go of pretending. They let go of testing their toughness. They let go of their postures. All of a sudden, she watched her students become kids again, enjoying the classes, making jokes with the teacher. In jail, her students became free. They were free from posturing or proving anything. They could simply come to class to be a young person and to learn. In fact, some of them were terrified about what would happen when they'd get released back out into the world. They wanted to stay in the comfortable confines of the jail longer, where someone was always watching over them, where the routine was regular, where meals were provided, where they knew they couldn't escape. Jail gave them some consolation In the wide, vast world outside, they sometimes could see no such reason for hope. Socially, we are very different from these kids, many of us, but emotionally, psychologically, physically, we are not. We are all in need. We all need someone to watch over us, even when we want to travel to the farthest limits of the sea. We all need to be changed, transformed, redeemed. We are all in need. This world, these systems, our very lives need to be transformed by God. So what if we stopped pretending otherwise? What if we stopped trying to keep up appearances? What if we stop acting like we know the answers and never need to be corrected? What if we stop thinking that if only we believe a certain thing or elect a certain person or keep quiet about a certain event, then all our problems will go away, then everything will be just fine and we'll be free. Just in case we need more convincing of our limitations, Paul uses the language of adoption to remind us that we are not all on our own forging our own path. We are adopted into the family of God, which might look different from the family that we would have chosen for ourselves, but whose bonds forged in Christ are even more powerful. We are joined into a family where God is in charge, not us. We are adopted children, not loners. We are heirs, not creators. We are debtors, not investors. We are not people who can skate through our days pretending to keep our hands clean. We are the ones who are scandalous and sinful and in desperate need of transforming grace. This can be hard to hear, but it also can be freeing. The psalmist already knows this. Paul is trying to show us this. Words that are scary to someone who wants to be self-sufficient are comforting to someone 
who no longer believes that everything depends on him or her. And so we discover once again that we are bounded by the one who knows no bounds. We are hemmed in by the one who gives us reason to hope. We are released from believing that success or power or even just making it through the day is all up to us. We are freed from thinking that we cannot fail because we can fail and we have failed and we will fail again and again and again. That is good news. So now what? How do we live now? We live knowing that we will look stupid at some point, but sometimes we need to dance in the car anyway. We live knowing that we will need to be corrected and chastised at some point, but needing to have tough conversations anyway. We live knowing that we will be hoodwinked at some point, but needing to practice trusting people anyways. We live knowing that we will rock the boat at some point, but needing to stand up against self-righteousness and sin and injustice anyway. We live knowing that we will ache and grieve and ugly cry at some point, but needing anyway to love and cherish the beautiful things in this imperfect, impermanent world. We could live hemmed in and held back by the fears and failures of our lives. That is an option. Or we could live as if we are hemmed in on all sides by love and held at all times by hope. What good news. This world is groaning. We do long for something more. But still, even now, we are held by a hope for things not yet seen. This is the promise of our creator of heaven and earth. This is the promise of our life in Christ. This is the promise which surrounds us and fills us with breath when we close our eyes at night and when we open them again in the morning. No matter what, we are hemmed in by love. We are held by hope. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, you have given us a promise in the ancient words of Scripture, and we return to them now, and we hear again your intention for our lives. You ask us to let ourselves be held by you and freed to live as your disciples. So again, O oh Lord, hold us and guide us and shepherd us into the days to come. In your holy name we pray. Amen.